It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. My guest today is Deke Copenhaver. Deke Copenhaver. You can find out more about Deke at deke-copenhaver.com. Deke serves as a principal of Copenhaver Consulting and is the Forbes book author of the book, The Changemaker, The Art of Building Better Leaders. The Changemaker, The Art of Building Better Leaders. Copenhaver was elected mayor of Augusta, Georgia, serving from uh, 2005 until 2014. And, was, uh, and has spoken at national conferences on topics including city design, economic development, healthcare, veterans issues, and the nonprofit industry. A former radio show host himself, the author, uh, the authors, uh, he authors, let me try that again, my lips must be wearing out. He authors a column on leadership published by the Georgia Municipal Association and has been recognized numerous times by the Georgia Trend Magazine as one of the top 100 most influential Georgians. Uh, I'm excited to have him on the show. Uh, Deke Copenhaver, welcome to the show. Thanks, Burton. Thanks for having me. You bet. You bet. All right. So talk about the book. Uh, you're sitting around. You, you're. Uh, did you start the book while you were mayor, or is this something that you did after your uh, stint as mayor? No, I'll tell you, it's a funny story. So I, I didn't grow up having any interest in politics. I wanted to be a writer. And I'm, so I you know, actually was in banking and finance. Then I was in real estate and development. Then I ran a nonprofit. Then I was mayor for nine years. And then two years ago, Forbes reached out to me. They have a team that does internet-based research to find people that are pr- producing content on par with their brand. So I'm and when Forbes first reached out to me, I thought it was a joke or a scam, and I almost deleted the email. But it turned out to be true, and um, so I published it. We published it a year ago, May, but um, it's done done real well. And so, I, at the age of fifty one years old, I was able to fulfill my lifelong dream. Yeah, that, I love that. That's uh, that's awesome. Now, that's interesting that uh, you didn't have any ambition to be a politician. So how did you go from not interested in politics to wanting to uh, to being mayor? Well, being in the midst of campaign season, it's interesting to me. So I'm, I have a degree in political science, but I used to tell people that the only thing I could tell you is that to straighten things out, getting that degree was it would take a revolution. But... I, in 2005, our former mayor, mayor prior to me, Bob Young, announced that he was taking post as Southeastern Eastern Regional Director for Housing and Urban Development. So I'd gone through a program the year before called Leadership Georgia, which is the oldest statewide leadership program in the nation. And Augusta had a terrible reputation for our politics. My graduation weekend from Leadership Georgia I had I get off the bus in South Georgia and have the 
then governor's chief of staff, who was a friend of mine, governor from Purdue's chief of staff, Eric Tannenblatt, asked me, and so we had our third current or former elected official go under indictment that week. And he said, man, what are you guys putting in the water up there? And I'm like, that's it. We need new leadership. And so I, I just saw a need. So I jumped in. Oh man, that's, uh, that's wild. That, uh, that is funny that, um, uh, what do you call it? That, uh, your buddy said, you know, that your buddy approached you and, and, you know, kind of, I don't know, I guess put that <laughs> bug in your, in your, in your head, right. That, uh, something has to change. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, as I say, I'm very competitive and spending a year going around the state, looking at other cities and other communities and constantly hearing wherever I went, what is wrong with Augusta's politics? And as I say, when you have at that point, three current or former elected officials, and it was black, white, male, female, and Democrat and Republican, I'm like, we gotta do better than this. So I just, and I'm fortunately in Georgia, all local races, except for, I believe sheriffs and judges and district attorneys are uh, basically city councils and county commissions are nonpartisan. So I didn't have to deal with partisan politics, but I, I was talking about that with somebody the other week and I'm like, it, it's great that cities elections are nonpartisan, but the fact that law enforcement and the judicial system are, <laughs> that's a little bit, those things should be non-politicized, you would think, but we yeah. live in the world. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let me ask you this. Uh, what do you define as a change maker? Really, somebody who is not afraid to step out in faith, go against the status quo to make a difference and really to work on rallying people around a common cause. I think Change-making leadership means leadership that brings people together, you know, as opposed to what we're seeing in, in politics right now. But it's always been that way. It's just it's so divisive. And when people say, you know, when you when we're looking to I think if we're going to come together, it's got to be at the grassroots level and the local level. Right. Because I, I just did a recent blog for Forbes and I said, if, if we're looking to political parties to heal our nation, that would be akin to me looking to the guy who broke my jaw in a bar fight and asking him to set it and think it's going to heal right. You know, that's, that's not necessarily what political parties are there for, but at the local level, if we could get more good people running for office, not for a career in politics, not to serve a party, but just to serve their community for a, and whatever short amount of time, how much better would the nation be? Yeah, you know, it's funny you should say that uh, years ago, I was a very staunch Republican and uh, not to go into a lot of detail, but I ended up deciding at a, uh, several years ago that no longer would I be just a Republican, uh, that I would look for good people, whether they were Republican or Democrat, uh, because really we need good people. If you just vote the party line, you're not always putting the community first. No, no. And that's, it, it's interesting. So I'll just a quick story. Actually, the year that I ran, I went through a church leadership retreat and the moderator said, well, in church politics, I was on the board of deacons. 
said, you've got 3% of the congregation that are for everything and they're very vocal. 3% that are against everything, they're very vocal. 12% that are for but not as vocal and 12% that are against but and not as vocal either. But then you've got the 70% in the middle that just want to see the church move forward. And so I, I governed to that 70%. I governed to the middle. And it, it got the extremes on either end very upset with me in certain circumstances, which I go into detail in the book. But I'm like, if I'm getting the far right and the far left mad at me, that's that's OK, because I'm governing to the majority. So but I don't. And I agree with you. We just need good people. But it, it's difficult, as toxic as it's gotten right now to get good people to run. Well, and I think I think there's a lot of good people out there that are just, you know, they're I think there's some people that have given up. Uh, you know, they, they see that it's such a massive challenge. Uh, it's it's become such a. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Unprofessional. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you're going to be attacked. Your family's going to be attacked. You're, you know, it, it's just. It has become the wild, wild west. It, it really has. And I, you know, my parents taught me to treat everybody with dignity and respect. And I did that when I was in office and people were like, well, why don't you just go off on your colleagues? And I said, you know, I don't care if I'm in politics or not. And you touched on the word. I'm going to be professional. I yeah. come from a business background and I'm, <clears throat> I'm not going to just go against my character to please you. Right. All right. Yeah, it's yeah. And, and I think it, I think you, you touched on another point. It has become. For lack of better terms, we it has become a very, you know, hate filled environment. Uh, you know, Facebook, uh, I, I refer to Facebook as hate book. I mean, it's just nothing but people hating on each other. I, I stopped uh, getting involved. Uh, I'm not very regular on Facebook anymore, but. You know, it's just become, I don't know, just a very barbaric situation out there. And I could see why a lot of good people are like, you know, forget it. It's it's just not worth my time. Well, to, uh, I mean, I'll give, give you an example. And I, I when I was in office that, you know, Facebook wasn't around when I first ran or maybe it was, but it was in its infancy. And so I saw when it came along, somebody started a fan page for me. I had no idea what Facebook was. But I thought this is a good way to interact with citizens. But what you realize is, and it turned uglier over time. It's kind of novel to begin with. But I'm like, it, it gives a gives people, if you're in elected office, a false sense of access, right? So if somebody asks me a public finance question at 11 o'clock on Saturday night, I'm not going to, is something that would take, you know, we, we've got finance people with the city or we've got bond attorneys. And, but to, for somebody to think that the mayor is going to answer their question at 11 o'clock on a, a Saturday night is not realistic. But I, so in my final campaign, and I'm just, I'm not going to pull any punches. I had somebody film my house while my wife and I were there. Wow. And basically his candidate was saying she wanted to end blight in all neighborhoods, but it was creepy. He's like, oh, the mayor lives in a nice neighborhood and all this. So after he posted it, 
I, I've shared it and said, this is what it's like to be a politician. Well, the same guy, after I won my final election, posted on Facebook, I hope the mayor gets the flu and dies so that his candidate could be mayor. Wow. And that, that was when I got off of Facebook. I, I still am on there because it's a good way to promote the book. But I mean, that's, that's how I tell people that and they're like, that really happened. I'm like, Oh yeah. Well, and, and now that, that wouldn't even scratch the surface of no, I mean, that's, what people are doing. It's gotten even worse. That's tame compared to what we're seeing now. And I, I, you know, I'm very active on social media, but LinkedIn for business is great to me. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, Instagram, I like a whole lot. Um, Twitter, uh, Twitter can get a little negative as well, but I like to, but it goes back to LinkedIn's professional and Instagram is positive. Yeah. And I would rather do what I did for nine years, be positive and professional. And so I, you'll, this is a funny story too. I had, had lunch with um, Andrew Young one time. We, we were both on the board of visitors at the University of Georgia. And it was just a great conversation about what it's like to be a mayor. And I said, but yeah, everybody has their, you know, critics and settings. He said, what are, what are your critics and settings say? I said, they say that I'm too, too positive and I'm not controversial. And he's like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I'm like, yeah, if that's what you're going to tar and feather me with, I think I'll take that all day. I mean, that's, you know, you, you wouldn't say that about most politicians. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that, that's actually a, a nice compliment, really. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, so let's talk about this. Um, one of the things that you say uh, is leadership fails to bring people together. So what's the first step in bringing people together? Talk about this. It, it really... Uh, it's to physically do it, I think. Now we do it online a little bit more, but I'll give you an example. So my first day in office, we started a mayor's prayer breakfast. And for open all denominations, we for years went to, you know, large houses. I mean, houses of worship throughout the um, throughout the community. We went to the synagogue. We went to affluent churches, poor churches, black churches, white churches. But over time, what happened was, and we, 15 years later, we're still doing it. We had one this morning. We were challenged by the Freedom From Religion Foundation when I was in office to cease and desist because it was called the Mayor's Prayer Breakfast. We switched to the name Community Prayer Breakfast and just moved on. But you, what happened was, and to this day, you have people from across the city of different socioeconomic backgrounds, different faiths, different races that may never have met each other that have developed these great relationships and friendships. So I think finding a way to physically bring people together, but it's, it's gotta be in your heart to want to bring people together because somebody that doesn't have, you know, unity and in their heart trying to convene a meeting of people from all walks of life, it, it doesn't really work. You've got to have the sincerity there as well. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail right on the head there. It does have to come from the heart. Uh, you know, you look at some of these people who did not have a small, a, a uh, what do you call it? A snowball's chance 
of accomplishing what they set out to accomplish, but because they were driven from the heart, they were sincere, they were able over time amass a group of support and actually accomplish the impossible. Absolutely. Well, I talk about it in the book that the, the only power that a change-making leader or just a leader in general, in my opinion, should concern themselves with is the power to inspire because no one individual can do anything alone. But if you can inspire people around you to work with you, there really isn't anything you can't accomplish. And I, I think what I see sometimes in, in elected leadership in, in business leadership, and when people get out of touch with the people they serve, that's sort of a dangerous place to be in. And if you as a leader perceive yourself above those you serve, it's really difficult to bring people together in that scenario. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, what you're talking about there is, is that component, uh, very vital component, humility. And when you get around people that are highly successful, but are yet rooted in, you know, they're grounded, they're, they're humble. They don't think they're above you. Um, you know, that they are, you know, it, it's an incredible thing. It, it's awe inspiring to be around somebody who, who's achieved so much, but they're just so grounded. Uh, to me, it's awe inspiring and it doesn't happen that often. Uh, but it is very awe inspiring. It, it is. And I, you know, I've had the pleasure of meeting a lot of famous people and it, the ones that always impress me are the ones that like, I'll give you an example, Ben Crenshaw, you know, great golf champion. Well, while I was in office, we had the mayor's master's reception every Monday night of the masters to honor a past champion. And literally, so Ben Crenshaw, you know, for your viewers that master champion, just, uh, I mean, golf legend, golf hall of fame, but his, his mother grew up in the same small town as my father did Tazewell, Virginia, but, but we had never met, but he was probably one of the nicest people I've ever met. I mean, with all the success in his golfing career, he was just, he was about as humble as you could get. But, but, but even in politics, I'd say our past governor, um, Governor before Governor Kemp, Governor Nathan Deal, just accomplished so much for this state. But I, after I saw, I knew him while he was running the first time to be gave a two-term governor. But I just in seeing the you know the political governor's race that year, I thought, golly, do we want either of these two guys? When I came to go know Governor Deal he had a wonderful humility about him, which I think is unusual in politics, but it does. That's what impresses me. Um, Joe Riley, who was longtime mayor of Charleston, they called him America's mayor. He was a mentor of mine, but just uh, true leaders and just a humble, humble man. And I, I, you can't help to me, but as you mentioned, to be inspired and drawn to that. And that's, that's another thing is that, you know, my dad raised me to be a gentleman and has it become a bad thing to be a gentleman in this world or, you know, 
you got to be the guy that you know, is willing to do anything to succeed. And I don't think that's the case. Right. Well, and I think I think what's happened is people. Uh, I'll say unsophisticated, arrogant people will take kindness and generosity and uh, somebody who's humble as weak. And that's, you know, that's obviously a mistake because you can be ferocious and still be humble. You can be, you know, you can be competitive and still be a humble individual. I mean, you know, they're not exclusive. And I think that some people will will look at somebody who doesn't have the outer killer, uh, what do you call it, uh, armor on and and kind of discount that person and that's again that's that arrogance that they think that there's somebody that 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 the way they operate is somehow better than the way the other person operates but you know humility is very powerful and i think it's very important as a leader because you mentioned bringing people together and i think humility does that uh, we see we see, we see what happens when leaders don't have that humility quotient and there's constant turnover people are unhappy uh you know things aren't getting done the blame game is constantly being you know played it's just it's a completely different leader it it is and i talk a lot in the book about vulnerability so i was doing a local tv show here with a friend of mine and he said when you talk about in the book about being vulnerable can you do that in politics and i said absolutely He's like, can you do it all the time? I said, I told my friend, I said, Brad, that's what connected me to the people I serve because I admitted, you know, I'm not perfect. I admitted I don't have all the answers. And vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. To to get up on a stage or to have a conversation with somebody and completely open yourself up. Now that's a whole lot harder than being guarded and secretive and, you know, just to open yourself up to the world. But, but I, I get into this too. So, so I, I'm competitive as anything. I mean, I do, I want to win, but more so than that, I want my team to win. And my dad always taught me the value of sportsmanship to be, you know, a gracious winner, but also a gracious loser. And I've learned more from my failures in life than I ever have from my successes, to be perfectly honest. But but that that humility and vulnerability are key because that that connects you with people. And if you're able to connect with people, you can connect other people together. And it's I I think it's a really cool thing to feel like you're swept up in something that's bigger than you. And yes. I think that's what good leadership is. If you can make the people around you feel valued, secured, and feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, that's the way you achieve sustainable success. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So let me ask you this. Um, how can a change maker make a difference? Talk about this. Oh, gosh. It's, I go back to the leap of faith. But I tell people that leadership knows no age. And a, a big part of leadership to me is actually doing what nobody else wants to do. So when I first um, said I was going to run for mayor, I got the question, you know, I had a good job. I 
had happy family. But they said, well, why do you want to do that? And I said, well, why do you want to get caught up on all that? And I said, because if everybody has that attitude, nothing's going to change. And so to, to make a change, it takes going against the status quo, which is, you know, not, not fun at times because there are people that profit off the status quo remaining in place. So, but the, the first thing is just to take that first step forward, face your fears and, you know, don't be afraid to go against the status quo. It's, I, it drives me crazy. And I see it in local governments. I see it in businesses that, but we've always done it this way. And it's amazing to me that even after, I mean, as we entered into the pandemic and to this point, I still see people out there in leadership positions trying to cling to the status quo. And I, I tell them, look, th there's no status quo to cling to anymore. We're in a completely different world. You've got to figure out how to pivot. You can't just continue to do things the same way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I have a question, but before I ask you this, this, this question, I, I want to, I want to ask you this first question, I, you know, because uh, I'd like to get your take on this. So, so what have you found? What are some of the big, biggest change makers in American history for you? Wow. Um, Abraham Lincoln was definitely one. I, I was listening to an interview with the gentleman the other day and said, well, you think that times are difficult right now. Imagine Lincoln. He basically took office and two weeks later, a civil war broke out. So Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr. is a hero of mine. And I, I think for, you know, a movement based on peace to achieve the results that he did with regards to civil rights. Um, I, I, John F. Kennedy would be another one and from a political standpoint, what he did you know, to get us to the moon. I say Ronald Reagan for me, too. I came of age during the Reagan years and I really... He, there were Reagan Democrats, you know, which is something we wouldn't see these days. But he had he had the ability to strike the correct tone during tragedy, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, but there there are so many out there. But those are just some of the ones that that influenced me in in Georgia, where I live. Governor Carl Sanders was from Augusta. He was elected in his thirties, I believe in 1962. And at that point there was a debate as to whether Atlanta was going to become the thriving metropolis of the South or Birmingham. And so they in Georgia elected a progressive, you know, Democrat in, in Alabama, they elected somebody that was against the civil rights movement. And so that really tipped the balance in Georgia's favor and Atlanta's favor, but there are just, there are examples throughout history that, that we don't even know about, but, but I always look for the examples of change making leadership because I learn from them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you. Uh, I love Martin Luther King, uh, Rosa Parks. Oh yeah. I, I think is, uh, uh, unbelievable. Um, you know, it's one thing, you know, it's anyway, not to get, too much in it, but I think what Rosa Parks did was incredible. And as you said, to be to do this, knowing 
that you're putting yourself in harm's way, but yet you are trying to do it uh, peacefully. You're yeah. not trying to do it violently. Um, so one of my current favorite change makers, when you were talking about the status quo or breaking the status quo would have to be Elon Musk. I yeah. think that he's done some incredible things. I think that, you know, he's been told numerous times it's not going to work. This is the way it's always been done, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and that's, that, that's to me, I, I would say, and that's a great example of a change making leader. But basically, I would guarantee you at every change making leader, at some point, somebody calls you crazy. Right. Yeah. That's a crazy idea. You'll never be able to do that. But I growing up, I remember my sister always saying, just don't tell him he can't do something. Just do not tell him he can't do something because it's a challenge. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. You know what? It's incredible. Uh, it's incredible what happens when there's a good leader in the mix. Uh, you know, and, and I, I'm going to probably butcher the uh, this saying, but uh, there's a saying that says something about, um, you know, a committed small group of people, you know, can change the world. And that's all we've ever that's all there's, there's ever been. Right. Is a small, yeah. committed group of people. And, and in that small, committed group of people, you have a leader who can keep those people inspired and focused and. And that's to me incredible. And uh, like you said, there are literally probably tens of thousands of these very special leaders that nobody's ever heard of, but they were special to their community. They, they were change makers, you know, in their communities. Um, and it's just incredible, um, you know, what, uh, again, what a good leader can do for an organization, a community, uh, you know, whatever. It's just, it's, in, it's a, it's an incredible thing. It, it, and go ahead. I was going to say, and it's something that we seem to be lacking. Well, yes, and I think the the stories are out there, but basically, what we see in politics and the mainstream media are the extremes. But one of the really cool things about my book is that it's been embraced by the younger generation. So I'm several weeks ago, just as an example, I had a young man from Spain. He's 19 years old. He's been named, his name is Jericho, one of the top 200 young leaders in Spain. So he reached out to me to tell me how the book inspired him. So last fall, um, I had nothing to do with this, but the University of Texas El Paso Student Engagement and Leadership Center found the book and worked it into a program that they had called powerful pages. I knew nothing about it until I saw students at UTEP throwing up pictures on Instagram of them reading the book. So I, I have during this, the pandemic has been interesting for me in a way because I, my business model was built around, you know, coming into this year, just doing speaking engagements and had a great one at UTEP and then, on March 10th, the world flipped upside down. But I think now with social media, when properly used, we have a platform to connect those change-making leaders and 
to learn from each other. But I just, one of the things that is inspiring to me about all my young followers or friends or whatever on Instagram is how positive they are and how positive their posts are. And so many of the students I met at UTEP, I, and I tell that generation, I just did a podcast with a young lady out of Australia that's a millennial rock star in the smart communities field, but they it's reciprocal, right? Because they say I inspire them, but they inspire me. But it gives me to see a new generation of leaders coming up that are, I believe, going to do things differently and to know how interconnected they are. That's a pretty powerful thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. OK, so uh, we're, we're short on time. So I wanted to ask you this question before we run out of time. In the book, you talk about. Um, well, let's see. Let me see if I can pop it up here. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Uh, the seven attributes of a change makers. What are the seven attributes of a change maker? Creativity, courage, connecting, listening, transparency, composure. And the last that is one of the most important ones is character. Yeah, that's incredible. I like that. I like that. Um, all right. So I want to pop this up real quick. Uh, if somebody wants to reach out to you, they can go to Deke dash copenhaver.com deke dash copenhaver.com and real quick the book is the change maker the art of building better leaders um deke it's been a lot of fun having you on the show and uh, i look forward to having you back again and, and talk more about leadership absolutely bird it's been a pleasure man have a great day all right you too man